0: As we move our way through the uh, doctrinal teaching as it's laid out in the Heidelberg Catechism, we come to the discussion of the second commandment. The first commandment dealt with who is to be worshipped. In the second commandment, we will see how he is to be worshipped. And in connection with that, we will read from Exodus 15. Exodus 15, the verses 1 to 19. you'll be able to find that on page 77 of your pew Bible. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. This is after the Egyptians were overthrown in the Red Sea when they were trying to chase down the people of Israel. They sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed, You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. till your people pass over, O Lord." Till the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So far. Now in connection with that, we will read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35. Lord's Day 35, dealing with the second commandment. And you'll be able to find that on page 552 of your book of praise. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or to have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, for those of you who were here last week, you may remember the example that was used of the pagan who moved his idol from the backyard to the front yard in order to make himself better again. Others of you may remember us speaking about the golden calf, the idol that the Israelites placed on the foot of Mount Sinai. Having heard that and reflected on the fact that our eyes need to be focused on God alone, on our Lord Jesus Christ, you might be thinking, why is this second commandment necessary? Didn't we already cover this in talking about idols? You'll find that the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church feel the same way. They see such a great overlap between these two commandments that they blend them together. And since this would otherwise leave them with nine commandments, they take the tenth commandment and then they split it in two. But is this right? Is there so much overlap between the first and the second commandment that there's actually no difference between having no other gods in your life and images? Let's take a moment to reflect on that phrase that we read this morning as we were reading the law. In verse 3 of Exodus 20, we read the phrase, you shall have no other gods before me. This is not to say that we should have no other gods in the number one place, that we, just to say that we should have no other gods in the number one place before me. No, Rather, we should have no other gods at all in the presence of God. Wherever God is, there should be nothing else vying for his position. We should fix our eyes on him alone. In verse 4 of Exodus 20, we read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And now, before someone suggests that this rules out any artwork, we see a section added to give context to this command. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. So we can see it's pretty specific. The images that we cannot have are images by which or through which we intend to render service to God. You see, in the ancient Near East, everyone had images by which they worshiped their god. Their gods could be controlled in that way. They could make them do what they wanted. They could understand that particular god's strengths and weaknesses. If you had a god that was, say, in the shape of a bull, that would represent strength, power, and fertility. Or if you had a god in the shape of something else that would represent that particular strength of that God. Each different God could be shoved into a category that you needed him in. And when you, needed to pull, when you needed him after that, you could just pull him out of the box that you had left it in. You worship that God in the way you want, offering, to, offering the particular image that you need a particular favor from in that particular area of your life. And then you put that God back in its corner in your mental space and forget about him until you need him again. In light of that, suddenly it becomes crystal clear what the difference is between the first and the second commandment. God is a God who transcends all. He can't simply be pulled out of a mental corner and then shoved back in when we are done with him. He doesn't just have dominion over one area of life. He is not the God that you pull out when you need help with this particular thing or that particular thing. He's not simply a, in case of fire, break glass kind of God. He's sovereign over all. He is transcendent. He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. The first commandment says, this is your God. And the second commandment says, don't treat me like any other god. The gods of the nations worship me according to my commands. And the first commandment deals with who God is. And the second commandment deals with how he is to be worshipped. And that brings us to our theme for today. Let us worship God according to his will. We'll see, first of all, that there is none like him. Secondly, let us serve him accordingly. Our God is unique in the world. In our text, Exodus 15, we read, "We read, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? The Israelites were very well aware of the unique nature of their God. In Exodus 15, they had just escaped from the clutches of those who had held them in slavery for generations. They had watched the power of their God be exposed in its terrible majesty against their captors. We read in Exodus 2 verse 23 and following, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage. That laid the foundation of where they were today. When the other nations brought their cries before their gods, they hoped that the fact that they put their sacrifices right in front of the idols, because of that, the gods would be forced to see that sacrifice and reward them. However, it was not guaranteed that they would. You might remember the time, centuries later, when Elijah was on Mount Carmel, facing off against the priests of Baal, They were having a competition to see whose God would respond to their prayers with fire from heaven. The priests of Baal, they danced, they sang, and they wailed. That wasn't working. So then they cut themselves so that the blood flowed freely down their backs. They were hoping that with the scent of blood in the air, their God, he would smell it, and it would attract him. They would catch his attention. After a while of this going on, Elijah starts laughing at the utter ridiculousness of their situation and catcalling them. He says, Maybe he's meditating, or he is busy, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Shout louder! After this fine display, Elijah calls the people near. He repairs the altar to the Lord that had been broken. Pardon me, getting ahead of myself. The the prophets then redouble their efforts in the face of Elijah's jeers and carry on this way all day until the evening sacrifice. And yet we read there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Now after this fine display, Elijah calls the people near. He repairs the altar to the Lord that had been broken, representing a return to proper worship in Israel. He then pours water on it to make sure that it wouldn't catch fire easily. And then he prepared. As the time for the evening sacrifice draws near, he quietly kneels down and he prays to his God. Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Suddenly, the quiet is shattered by a roar and fire falls from heaven, consuming the burnt sacrifice, consuming the wood, consuming the stones of the altar and licking up the water that is in the trough around the altar. God had heard his prayer. Israel's God is a God that hears prayers. He was a God that remembers his covenant and his promises. Think back to Israel's groaning under the unbearable, back-breaking yoke of slavery in Exodus 2, verse 23. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, And this is where God's faithfulness shines through. They cried out and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. God is not a God like the other gods there that may or may not hear God is not like the god Baal, who they were able to tackle. God proceeds to deliver them in a way that explicitly shows his tremendous power and his redeeming hand. He heard them, and he acted. He acted in a way that far outshone anything that they could possibly expect, and anything that the gods of the nations around had done. That is why, after plagues and wonders and the drowning of the forces of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, the people were able to cry out in Exodus 15, verse 11, saying, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Our God is a God of redemption, He is a God of wonders. And He has shown that to us most clearly today through the sacrifice of His Son. There was an unfathomable chasm between us and God caused by the depth of our sin. There was an unbreachable wall created by our stubbornness and rebellion. There was an unclimbable mountain created by the debts that we had incurred, piling up one on another on another, increasing daily at a tremendous rate. But God crossed the chasm with the bridge made of the cross, He breached the wall with the power of his love. He erased the mountain of the debt with the blood payment in blood of his very own son. The biggest and most insurmountable crisis the world has ever faced was overcome by the infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God. Certainly Moses and the Israelites faced the great God after the Red Sea. Certainly, they saw even more glory at Mount Sinai when they had received the law from the Lord. But that glory cannot compare with the glory that God shows today. Turn with me to Hebrews 12, verse 18 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. And you'll be able to find that on page 1384 of your pew Bible. There we read, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard of it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For then they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, Or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and troubled. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly angels, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. In Jesus Christ, we have displayed to us the blazing center of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. While the other aspects of God's work set him apart from the gods of this world, his redemptive work through Jesus Christ shows to all that he is on another level altogether. He in his mercy led forth the people whom he redeemed and he guided them in strength to his holy habitation as we read in our reading. God being such a God, a God who is majestic in glory, who is infinite in power, whose justice is absolute, but also whose mercy is immeasurable. God being such a God has consequences for us today. It means that he is set apart and he so desires to be worshipped in a manner that is set apart. We can see more of that in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 25. There we see, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. And in verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is not a God like those of the other nations. Gods made by the imaginations of the people. Throughout history, people have designed gods who were as they're described by historians, anthropomorphic, meaning that they had human characteristics and human tendencies. They were arbitrary. They often overlooked things. They responded in ways that were disproportionate to the action that was done, in ways that were taking revenge on people or on other gods. Take the Best extremes of human nature and the worst extremes of human nature, stereotypes on both sides, and add to that divine power to the mix. Those are the gods of the people. And they worship in a way that caters to that. But that is not our God. Our God is completely unique. He has shown that He is the God who transcends categories. Man's mind is finite. He creates gods that fit into the box of his imagination. But God is infinite. He knows that man's natural inclination is to limit him in worship. And so he wants to be worshipped in a way that he commands, a limitless way. And we must take care to worship in a way that shows acceptable reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So let us serve him accordingly having realized how other God is, it can be easy to think that we can't worship him. How can we possibly connect with a being that is so great and so powerful? How can we worship in such a way that does not place limits on the limitless? To understand that, let's take a look at the context of our reading for a moment. Exodus 15 falls into a time in which God has reached down to his people. And rescued them from slavery. He has delivered them from their oppressors and led them out into freedom. But this was not done in a vacuum. The very reason that God had delivered the people of Israel was because of his choice. God had called Abraham and laid claim on him. And he had laid claim to his descendants as his. He knew what was coming, saying in Genesis 15, verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and will afflict them. They will afflict them for 400 years. But because he had chosen them, he would not leave them in that place. Instead, he would be their God, and they would be his people. So centuries later, he raised up Moses to lead his people. Moses was a sign that God had not forgotten his people nor his promise to Abraham. And as a symbol of this, he gave to Israel a special name through Moses by which to call him Yahweh. Granting Israel this name was a symbol to them of that special relationship that he had with them. He had chosen them. He had redeemed them, he had delivered them, and he wanted them to know him. However, God didn't want his people to know him like they thought they knew the gods of the nations around. God wanted his people to know him as he had revealed himself, as Yahweh, their God. He was their God and they were his people, and he would teach them all this. Because of that, he eventually led them to Mount Sinai to receive the law. That is why images were so abhorrent to God. He wanted their allegiance to be to him, not to some image of him. He wanted them to know him, not to try and manipulate some idol to do their bidding. Not to try use an idol to direct their thoughts to him. Instead it was his word and his law that should be dear to his people. His prophets proclaimed his relationship with his people and called them to return. There was so much more in the word that was at work here than a simple image could bring forward. For God, it was his word in the minds of his people, written on their hearts. That was his declaration for their future as well. As the prophet Jeremiah proclaims in chapter 31, verse 33 of his book, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall a man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The law, the message of redemption, the declaration of the relationship and of being their God. How could an image possibly wrap up all that beauty, that grace, that love, that mercy? How could an image tie all of that together? It couldn't possibly All it could provide was a caricature, a cheap knockoff, something that could only provide the part and not the whole. So what about images today? Okay, clearly idols in a Hindu temple are off limits for us, but what about, say, something like a crucifix? What about an image of Jesus Christ? Are we allowed to worship God through that? or use that as a book for the laity to direct our thoughts and our hearts towards God? Our catechism states it pretty plainly. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. The same principle that we have been looking at here also comes out in this question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, that the word of God, the message of redemption, is central. When Christ came down to earth, Hebrews says that he came as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus Christ was the visible representation of God's mercy and truth on this earth, He carried out the redemption of God's people, freeing them from bondage to the devil once and for all on the cross. But while the action carried out and sealed our redemption, throughout his ministry, his focus was on the proclamation of the kingdom. The word was central to the ministry of Christ. And that is where he wanted to direct his people's eyes. The cross was certainly the central reason for his time here on earth to suffer, to die, to take the sins of those who believe upon himself. But Christ wanted his people to focus on what that now means for us, what that accomplishes for us today. And that doesn't direct our eyes then on a crucifix, on a man hanging on the cross. That directs our eyes back to our relationship with God. An image cannot capture the deep passion that was portrayed through the suffering on the cross. An image can't get any more than skin deep. But the love that was poured out for us in that moment on the cross, the redemption that was obtained for all who believe, that was real. The promises which are spoken to all those who believe, which are proclaimed to us time and time again, that is real. Christ himself said to one of his disciples, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Certainly we don't see our God today, but we do enjoy the riches of his promises and the springs of living water that well up in our hearts rooted in his word. This is what declares to us the limitless depths of God's love. This is what declares to us his great works throughout history. This is the way that he wants to be worshipped in accordance with his will. Amen.